Our scripture lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And I know that I have uh, verses 1 through 30 in the, the bulletin. But I'm going to read just the first 21 verses at this time, and then we'll come back to the other verses a little bit later in the sermon. John chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who did not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd. who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon. He is insane. Who listens to him or why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? May God add his understanding to our consideration of his word this morning. A week ago, well, almost two weeks ago now, my wife and I had the opportunity to go down to Orlando and spend a week at Disney World. This was a gift from our son, to us, uh, so we might have a vacation down there in Orlando, a place that we have enjoyed going over the years. And as we went down there and came back and participated in the different things there, one thing that struck me over and over again was the matter of security. So we left from the Appleton Airport, and um, the Appleton Airport is fairly small. There's not a lot of people who actually fly out of there. So when we went through security, it was like my wife and I were the ones going through security. So we had our carry-on bags on the 
the, the railing went through the scanner, something popped up in my bag. So they took me aside, they opened my bag, the TSA agent was going through, looking through everything, everything sharp in here, no. And he finally found what he was looking for. It was my glasses case I have my prescription sunglasses in. It has a metal hinge. Uh, they came up later, Disney World as well. All right, so he said, okay, you're okay. So we get shoes on, belt on, off, get dressed, go fly down there. Okay. So we're at Disney World. We get our tickets. So then we have to go through security again. Everything's checked. Glasses case comes up again. So then they said, just hold it outside the next time you come through the scanner. So I said, okay. Then we have to scan our tickets and put our fingerprints in there. Then every other time we go into the park, scan the ticket, and they'd read our fingerprint. If uh, somebody's fingerprint didn't match what they had, but they could prove they were the person who had the ticket, then they would take a picture of you. And then whoever was watching everything would have that picture pop up on their iPad uh, down the road. Pretty tight security. So you get in the park, you realize, you know, there's probably nobody in here with bombs or guns or knives or things like that. Pretty safe place. Okay, now, we might say, why is this passage, John 10, in the book of John? Why did Jesus say these words? He talks about what he does for his sheep, yes. But what does he talk about being the door and then being the shepherd and knowing his sheep? I think that as we wrestle with the matter of um, security, we realize that we are primarily concerned about physical security, but in reality, spiritual security should be our primary concern. Does the Lord know us? We say, I know the Lord, but does the Lord know us? That's the key thing. And here Jesus is telling us, I do know my sheep, so you don't have to worry about stuff. Now, the greater context of this passage, and I'm going to take just a minute to go through this. If we were to it back in John chapter 5, we find that Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. It was on the Sabbath day. The man is, you know, took up his mat and was walking home, and the religious authorities are chastising him for walking and carrying something, working, as it were, on the Sabbath. And Jesus, who healed on the Sabbath, how he could possibly do that? In John chapter 8, Jesus said he was the light of the world. And the Pharisee says, you are, and he said, I'm bearing witness about myself. They said, you are not. Your testimony is not True. They're saying, you're a liar and a fraud, said that to Jesus. The previous chapter, John chapter 9, there's a man who was born blind. Jesus heals the man. And there are several things that take place after that. Because the authorities, the spiritual leaders, come to him and they're questioning him. Well, who, who healed you? How did this take place? And in verse 27 of John chapter 9, he said, he answered, 
I've told you already, you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples also? He's kind of a little snarky there. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we do not know where he comes from. All right. Although he can heal people who are lame, he can give sight to the blind. They don't know where he came from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This man were not from God. He could do nothing. They answered, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Basically, they excommunicated him from the synagogue. They threw him out. You're on your own. You'll not worship with us anymore. And then Jesus came to him a little bit later and revealed to him who he was, and the man worshiped him. So we see this matter of the religious leaders attacking those who have interaction with Jesus in very positive ways, even being healed or forgiven of their sins, and castigating them because of that relationship to Jesus. So now Jesus is speaking, I believe, about that event, in part because of what we see in verse 21. Other Jews said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, we, we know Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. One of the very ch- first churches I served, there was a, um, an eye surgeon who was part of the congregation. And he was talking to me one day about the passage. And he said, you know, what do you think when he said Jesus opened the eyes of this blind man? I said, well, I guess he just gave him his sight. He said, yeah. But if somebody is born blind, all the, the stuff that's necessary for them to see, all the nerves and all that kind of stuff is not developed. So when Jesus gave that man sight, what he actually did was create all of the, uh, the necessary stuff for his eyes to transmit that vision back to his brain. He said... It's a far greater miracle than most people realize. But this is the kind of stuff I deal with all the time. I know, I know that. I know what he's talking about. I, and I said, wow, I didn't realize that. That is a truly remarkable miracle. That's why nobody else had ever given sight to someone who was born blind. They couldn't do it. But Jesus did. We live in a time when Christians and the church are under attack. You, I'm sure I've heard comments from people, politicians, sometimes just activists, other times, who equate evangelical Christians with groups like the Taliban or right-wing white supremacists. And if you're letting me say, where in the world do they get that? You know, we're not white supremacists. We don't enforce our laws by force like the Taliban. The Taliban, if you refuse to go to a worship service to the mosque, they can just shoot you, and they do. 
So their mosques are full of people, but they're there not necessarily because they really want to worship their God, but they're fearful for what will happen if they don't. We don't do that. I've never known anybody who did that. But that's the impression that people have of Christians. And Jesus is telling us here, in a sense, don't worry about unbelievers and about religious leaders. I'll take care of them. Isn't that what God said through Ezekiel back in in chapter 34 of Ezekiel? I'll take care of these bad shepherds. Now, in the passage, Jesus says, I am both the door and the good shepherd. Uh, Most scholars really think that the passage about Jesus being the good shepherd and the door is another metaphor that talks about his work as a shepherd. You may not agree with that, but that's basically the tact I'm going to take this morning. Jesus is the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, he's the one who keeps the sheep safe, his sheep safe. I'm sure you've all heard explanations about what a sheepfold was back in uh, 2,000 years ago. It was some kind of an enclosure. It might have been built like a stone wall. It might have been brambles or whatever. But it was a place to put the sheep in at night, and several shepherds would put their sheep in the same enclosure. And then morning when they would call the sheep, sheep understand the voice of their shepherd, and they would follow the shepherd. So one shepherd would come up and say, hey, guys, come on, and they would all follow him, the next shepherd, and then and so on and so forth. And Jesus is saying, my sheep know my voice. My guess is, at that time in your life, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, there was something calling you inside. And you knew that was the voice of God, the voice of Christ, calling you to trust and believe in him. You recognize it, and you acted on that. He says there are thieves and robbers. There are bad shepherds out there. They want to steal, kill, and destroy the sheep. Now, I have to admit, I have very little experience, like zero experience with sheep. I have seen sheep, and I saw one example of a shepherd who was a bad shepherd, in my opinion. A few years ago, my family and I were visiting our older daughter who lives in northwest Iowa. Say, a friend of ours has a, you know, a farm. They have some sheep. They just had some baby lambs that were born. Would you guys like to go out and see the, the baby lambs? Everybody said, sure. So we go out there. We go in. I think we have coffee first and talk and anything. Then she tells her son, her teenage son, go out and feed the sheep so they'll come up by the fence and we can go out and take a look at them. So, okay. So she gives him a few minutes to do that. Then we go out there. And he had been pouring feed into the trough. Sheep were lined up there. And there was one ram. And the ram wasn't saying exactly where this boy wanted him to. So he was kicking the ram in the, his hind quarters over and over and over again. And the ram would not move. He kicked it harder and harder. Finally, the ram looked at me like he said, are you out of your mind? 
And then the ram just stepped over like two inches, and the guy was satisfied. He stopped kicking him. And his mother was embarrassed and said, well, I, I guess that's kind of an example of a bad shepherd, isn't it? And we didn't say anything, but I was saying, exactly. <laughs> Fortunately, God doesn't treat us like that. He's, not, he's kind and gentle and brings us along. And I wondered if a wolf had come up growling and snarling with you know, drool coming off of his lips, would that kid have just said, help yourself? Probably. He wasn't going to tangle with him. Well, that's the way a lot of religious leaders are, bad religious leaders. They are false shepherds who only desire to take advantage of the sheep. Initially, I was going to list a number of people who I would consider to be bad shepherds. You've probably seen these things on, uh, on the Internet, you know, the 10 richest, richest pastors in the country or something like that. And there are some pastors that have millions and millions of dollars. I can honestly test I do not, but uh, most pastors I know do not. But there are, there are people who just seem to be doing their work just for what they can get out of it. But as I was thinking about all of this, I said, well, who was the first bad shepherd I was really aware of? And the first bad shepherd I remember, a false shepherd, was a man by the name of Reverend Jim Jones. Some of you older guys probably know who I'm talking about. His full name was James Warren Jones. He was American, an American civil rights preacher, a faith healer, and a cult leader who conspired with his inner circle to direct a mass suicide and murder of his followers in the jungles of Ghana, in Jonestown, Guyana. So he had been in California, took his people down to Guyana, had this compound of about 1,000 people. And there were some of the people there who wanted to leave and were contacting their relatives back in the States. And so one congressman, whose name was uh, Leo Ryan, and some others went down there to see what they could do to bring these people who wanted to be set free back to the United States. When the process, Leo Ryan and others and those who wanted to leave were killed. They were just killed. And then I guess uh, Jones and his, his cohort, knowing that uh, probably other U.S. contingencies were coming down there, probably even U.S. troops because of that, they uh, concocted this drink it's usually called Kool-Aid, but it's actually it was called a product called Flavor-Aid, but we always say Kool-Aid, laced with cyanide. And 918 commune members drank that and died. 304 of them were children. So you've heard the expression, you're drinking the Kool-Aid, now that's where that comes from. Now you might say, that kind of doesn't even make any sense. At least to me, it doesn't. Why would you mistreat people in such a fashion? I've never wanted anybody to be in my church who didn't want to be there. I've always wanted people to to come and worship with us and get to know us so that they understood what we believed and how we worshiped and everything. And invariably, when people did, they said, hey, I I want to be part of this congregation. I said, great. 
to go through membership class and all of that. But I can never remember forcing somebody to join our church. Jesus says he gives the sheep abundant life, life in abundance. What does that mean? I think that means whatever is it's in contrast to what the world thinks is important. When we were at Epcot, they were having this uh, wine and food festival, so all the different uh, nations around Epcot would have whatever their drink was at their country, and people would buy it and drink it. And I don't know how many people saw wearing a T-shirt saying, you know, drink around the world or something like that. Now, I come from the Fox Cities. We live right next to Appleton. And it was only a couple of years ago that Appleton was ranked the number one drunk city in America. I don't know how Madison would compare to that, but we had that distinction. And you say, are people's lives that empty that all they have is just going out and getting drunk? And I guess so, because it happens over and over again. I was talking to my daughter just the other day about this. She said, yeah, but here, they think that's the normal thing to do. And they don't realize there's, an, there's another way of, of life where you, you really live. Now, to me, this is something which is kind of um, touching, because when I was in high school, the thing to do was to go out and drink and get drunk and so forth. I didn't do that because it just seemed like a waste to me, a waste of a Friday night or a Saturday night. And as, as I was invited to uh, go participate in, in youth activities at the church, they actually did stuff that was enjoyable, it was fun. Not just sitting in some car at one drive-in and then hear something happen at another drive-in driving, you know, three miles down the road to the next drive-in. and circling there for a while, and then nothing's going on. You go back and forth. But for a lot of those people who were my friends, they didn't have anything else. My wife taught preschool for about 10 years up in the Fox Cities. And there'd be times when parents would say, and call and say, hey, you know, the Packers lost yesterday my my four-year-old is just sort of distraught about that. I, I think we're going to keep him home today. And he's like, what in the world is the matter with you? But that's kind of all they have. They don't have any life in abundance. So what does it mean we have life in abundance? So it could mean a whole bunch of things, but I think part of it is we have hope, unlimited hope, in our salvation because of what Christ has done. As the Bible uses the word hope, it's not talking about something we wish would take place. I wish I would, uh, I don't know what I wish for. But it's, it's what I know is true and going to happen. Is God giving us in his goodness all those things that we need? We don't need alcohol. We don't need winners in football games. 
we need to understand spiritual truths, which we have in the Bible. Living abundantly means we also have someone who helps us and can lift us up during the worst times of our lives. And we know that. I imagine most of you have been to funerals, and there's a certain confliction that you have because this person who was a believer is, is, has died and they're no longer with us. And yet at the same time, there's a certain joy that we have because we know that they are with their Savior in heaven. There is that joy that we have. And our grief is because they're not with us anymore. And we wish that they were. But we have joy because they're with the Savior. And we could go on about all the things that we have in Christ. But maybe that's enough for, for right now. Jesus is the one who guards the gate to heaven. And you have to go through him to enter heaven. And he once said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Yeah. So in his capacity as the door, Jesus keeps the sheep safe and protects them from false shepherds. And it goes on to say that as a good shepherd, he lays his life down for his sheep. He saves his sheep. He gives his life as a sacrifice. He lays it down willingly. He takes it up again. He has the authority to do that. Even when the mob came to arrest Jesus, you know, Peter pulled out his sword and cut off the ear of, uh, I think, a servant named Malchus. Jesus restored the ear and everything. He said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. And they fell back. He could easily have run away, but he didn't. He let him get back up, let them arrest him. And he willingly went with them for all the misery he was going to endure at their hands and then be crucified. The hireling runs away from danger because he doesn't care for the sheep. But Jesus is the good shepherd who protects the sheep in every situation. He knows the sheep by name. In the Old Testament, we are told, and this is Isaiah 43, that our names are written on the hand of God. He'll never forget us. He'll never lose us. He knows we are his. There was a time I was watching a a concert on TV. And they showed a a close-up of the the lead singer's hand, kind of from the the back, the camera's behind him. And on his hand was written the order of the songs they were going to sing during the the concert. (laughs) Like he didn't have a teleprompter or anything like that. So he'd finished one song, kind of glanced down at his hand so he knew what was coming up next. Well, that ink would wash off when he gets back to his uh, dressing room or trailer or whatever. 
but it says that our names are engraved on his hands. It, it never is never going to be lost. It'll always be there. He knows who we are. Jesus also says there are other sheep that he's going to bring into to one flock. And we think that means the Gentiles. He tells the those who were opposed to him there, you don't listen to me because you are not my sheep. You know, a passage talks about uh, elect and non-elect. This is one of those passages. You don't know me because you're not my sheep. My sheep know my voice and follow me. And you don't because you're not my sheep. But another thing that we're told, and this is a passage I didn't read yet, In verse 27, it says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, as God both the Son and the Father would have unlimited strength, the right power. So if Jesus says, the sheep are protected in my hand, and no one can pry my fingers apart and pull them away, we realize they are safe. It's almost like we're doubly safe, because we're also in the Father's hand. And in my mind, when I read this, I see Jesus enfolding the sheep in his hands and the father's hands clapped over his. No one can take him away from him. And that's what the Apostle Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. A very rich passage that we have here that talks about the security that believers have in Christ. Jesus says that all that came before him came to steal, kill, destroy. Jesus doesn't say bad things won't happen to you. It's just that you will be safe during those bad things in my salvation. We may well go to prison because of our faith. We might be killed because of our faith. But that does not separate us from Christ's love and our security in him. My pastor Noshkosh, Josh Galaxon, lived and worked in China for 10 years as a, as a missionary. And not long ago, he was relayed to me about a friend of his and his family who were still in China at that time. And the conversation went something like this. On a Tuesday, Chinese officials came to his house that separated him and his wife and their children all into different rooms, and different officials were talking to each of them. And they grilled them, interrogated them for several hours. When they were done, he said, they told my friend, you have to be out of the country by Saturday. And left. If they weren't out, they would be thrown in prison. So their friends came, helped them, packed up what they could, 
to ship back over to this country, promised to try to sell things uh, that were left behind and take care of that. But his library, he could not take most of his books and all those kinds of things. So I say, well, what comfort did they have? They, they, they like lost everything they had. The only thing they did not lose, the only thing they could never lose, was the salvation that they had that was accomplished through the work of Christ, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And that's the only comfort that we have as well. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come before you, we know that you are the one who's provided salvation through Jesus Christ. Lord, we live in times which are somewhat uncertain for us. We, we always hope for the best, but we, we never know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. Although we do know that we are safe and secure in the hands of Christ and in your hands. Lord, we know that over the last couple of centuries, many, many Christians have suffered and died because of their faith. And while we would wish that would not happen to us, we recognize that should it happen, they can take our life, but they can never take our faith. They can never take the salvation that we have in you. And we take great comfort in the fact that we belong to you, and we always will. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn in your bulletin to the King of Love, My Shepherd Is. Let us stand as we sing.